Welcome to Gracious Words. Gracious Words is taken from the weekly women's Bible study taught by Cheryl Broderson at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California. We behold your glory, God, in the face of Christ. It shows us who you are, revealing who you are. It has been said that as you read the Bible, it reads you. Today, we'll see how Jesus uses a parable and questions to challenge his listeners to honestly examine their own hearts that they may see him as their Messiah. And now here is part two of Cheryl's message titled, Jesus is the Answer. Jesus says to those asking, I will ask you one thing and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? The religious leaders could not answer this straightforwardly or honestly. In other words, they could not talk with any authority about authority. They couldn't authoritatively answer this question. Why? Because their thought processes, their rationale, their motivation behind everything was their own self-promotion and popularity. The religious leaders could not answer it straightforwardly or honestly. Their answer was predicated on the reaction of the crowd. They were afraid to say that John's baptism was of men because the crowd knew he was a prophet. They recognized John as a prophet. In Luke 1, 65 through 66, after the, the birth of John, we're told that those things that happened were noised about Judea. In other words, John's birth, how Zechariah had been in the temple at the hour of prayer and been struck dumb or unable to speak by the, the angel and come out and not been able to say anything until John was, the, was born, John the Baptist was born. The fact that his mother and his father were so aged, the fact that his father was a priest, all these things were talked about all over Judea. And we're told that all of Judea had their eyes on John from the moment of his birth. When his father wrote, his name is John, and all of a sudden his tongue was loosed. And he began to praise the Lord and prophesy over his son. Everyone was watching John the Baptist. What would become of John the Baptist? They could see God's hand on John, even from his inception and conception. And so they watched. They listened to John. We're told that multitudes went out. To the Judean wilderness, out of Jerusalem, out of the cities of Israel to be baptized with, by John. But we're told that John preached and said, there is one who is among you even now, who's going forth is before me, but he is after me. 
And I'm not even worthy to stoop and tie the laces of his sandal. And when he saw Jesus, he pointed him out and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus. Jesus. We're told that two of John's disciples, at least two of John's disciples, John, who wrote the Gospel of John, Andrew, who was Peter's brother, had been John the Baptist disciples, but when John introduced Jesus as the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world, they immediately began to follow Jesus. John chapter 1. John also said, I didn't know who he was, but the Spirit had told me I would recognize him. And when John baptized Jesus, the heaven was opened and God announced from heaven, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And John saw the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus like a dove. And he knew, he knew the one he had believed in, the Lamb of God, the one who would bring the axe to the root of the tree of Israel that chopped down everything that they were trusting in. The one who is truly righteous, who would remove the sin of the world. They were afraid to say that John's baptism was of man because the people had been observing John. Also, John the Baptist was considered a martyr because he was killed by Herod. He had also been of the priestly line. His father had been a priest. Yet the religious leaders could not say that his baptism or the right to baptize was from God. Because then they would have to admit that he was a prophet and spoke God's word. And John had pointed to Jesus. Again, John 1.29, behold the Lamb of God. The religious leaders refused to answer Jesus. Verse 7, they refused to dignify Jesus' question with an answer. Their answer was not one of ignorance. It was of outrage and dishonesty. They couldn't answer Jesus without implicating themselves in one way or another. Jesus then told a parable that pointed to their dishonesty. It was about a man, a nobleman, who planted a vineyard. Now, when someone would plant a vineyard in those days, he would take a plot of land, and the first thing he would do would build a a wine press. Then he would build a tower, and then he would plant vines, grapevines, and he would cultivate them. Um, In those days, too, a grapevine had to have, like, um, little fences because a grapevine couldn't lay on the ground because the bugs would get the, the grapes. And so they would usually build them on these trellises. So they would be up off the ground and easy to harvest. So there was quite a bit of work in building or establishing a vineyard. The owner would put a lot of effort and design and time. It was an investment and money. 
into cultivating a vineyard. But this vineyard owner leased his vineyard to those who hadn't planted, who hadn't built, who hadn't worked for it because he needed to go into a far country for a long time. So he sent his servants to receive rent, rent in the form of the wine or the fruit that was being made or harvested by these occupiers. But those who leased the vineyard beat and sent away the first empty-handed. A second servant was sent to these people and they beat the second and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. He sent a third and they wounded and cast him out. It was their refusal to acknowledge the owner so that they might take possession of the vineyard. Now, according to the law of Moses, if you owned or received an inheritance like a vineyard, it could be leased, but it couldn't be sold. In the year of Jubilee, it always reverted back to the original owner. But these men thought if we can deny or not pay rent, that way we're not acknowledging that anyone owns this but us. Their refusal to give what was due in rent was their way of trying to steal or take credit for the vineyard. The owner, in the meantime, reasoned, well, those were servants. If I send my only son, Surely, he's coming with my authority. They will give him the fruit that is due. But those leasing the vineyard knew it was the son. And their reasoning was by killing the son, the owner would be forced to give them the vineyard because there'd be no heir. And therefore, he would have to leave it in their hands. So the occupiers killed the owner's son and cast him out of the vineyard. Having told this parable, it was clear to those listening that the vineyard was Israel because over and over again in the book of Isaiah and Jeremiah, God talked about Israel being his vineyard. He talked about the vine that he had planted in the wilderness that became the nation of Israel. They would know that the servants that God sent were the prophets because Second Chronicles, Isaiah, Jeremiah makes it clear that God sent his servants, Ezekiel, the prophets, to speak and turn the people from their unrighteousness and to give God the fruit that was due, true worship, faithfulness, love, obedience. But the people rebelled and they served idols and they would not serve the living God. This would resonate with both the Pharisee, Sadducee, elders, scribes, and people listening. No one was in the dark about this parable. And in this parable, Jesus is saying, I'm the son that's coming with the authority of my father. And you have cast out the prophets and treated them shamefully. Something that that generation took credit for. 
Jesus had said earlier to them, your fathers killed the prophets and you built the tombs. Their reasoning was saying, if this had happened in our day, we would have respected the prophet. But it wasn't true. They had killed the prophets. They knew. Jesus then asked the rightful, but the rightful condemnation is for men that would kill and cast out the son of the owner of the vineyard. Therefore, here's another question. What will the owner of the vineyard do to them? What would you do to someone who killed your son? There's a, there's a video on YouTube where the, the murderer of a young girl stands up to get sentencing. And the father is sitting on the other side of the courtroom and all of a sudden leaps over all these people to, to tackle the man that murdered his daughter. And, you know, the officers in the court, they grab the father and they hold him back. But I have to say, every time I watch that video, my sympathies are with the father. God entrusted the world, entrusted Israel with his only begotten son who was full of grace and truth and authority who healed and spoke and acted with authority. The answer is that the owner of the vineyard will come and destroy those vine dressers who killed his son and then give the vineyard to others. This is exactly what God has done. The nation of Israel was destroyed in AD 70. The temple was destroyed. No more sacrifices because the temple of God dwells in those who receive Jesus Christ. He has given the temple of God to us. We are that new people who have been given, given the vineyard. We've been brought into the promises and the goodness and the things that God has done. We now enter into the works of God. Matthew tells us that the religious leaders realized that they were the vine dressers in the parable. Luke 20 verse 19 tells us the same thing. They realized who they were in the story. He's talking about us. Those are our intentions. Intentions. Those are our thoughts. That's what we're about to do. To kill this one who has said he is the son of God. But though they recognize themselves, they still refuse to give God the fruit he deserves. They were the ones who persecuted the prophets and anyone who made any spiritual requirements of them. They are the ones with the hateful thoughts toward Jesus, the Messiah, God's son. Jesus points to the scriptures and asks, what then is this? Oh, because their answer is when Jesus says he's going to take the vineyard away from them and give them to, uh, you know, destroy them and give it to others. They answer, certainly not. Certainly not. Isn't that how so many people are? When you say, if you don't receive Jesus Christ, you have no covering for your sin. Therefore, you will atone for your own sins for eternity because that's how long it's going to take. 
to atone for your sins. And what do people say? Certainly not. I've been a good person. Certainly not. I don't deserve judgment. Certainly not. Jesus then points to the scripture and asks, what then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Jesus calls them to think about what the scripture says. His question made them have to process the ramifications of scripture. We read in John 5, 39, that Jesus says, you do search the scriptures for in them you think you have life, but these are they which testify of me. In Psalm 40, which is a prophetic psalm, it says, sacrifice and offering you have not required. Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will. The volume of scriptures all speak about Jesus Christ. You see, these men read the scriptures, but they used the scriptures as an end in itself. I read the Bible. I read the scriptures. I'm righteous. You see, reading the scriptures does not make you righteous. It's not an end in itself just to read the Bible. You know, it's possible to make reading the Bible a law. Did you realize that? You can put yourself under the law saying, I have to read five chapters a day. I have to read. I have to read. The Bible is a means to an end. And that end is Jesus Christ. The Bible is to lead us to our need for Jesus Christ and bring us into a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you read the Bible just to read the Bible, if you read the Bible to say, I'm spiritual, I read the Bible. If you use the Bible to justify or feel righteous, then the Bible has become to you a law and not a means to knowing Jesus. You see, these Pharisees, these scribes who wrote the Bible, who would copy the Bible, who would discuss the Bible. These chief priests who were to live according to the Bible, Leviticus, they had the scriptures, they read the scriptures, but they never had a relationship with God and therefore they refused to recognize their Messiah when he came. In fact, they killed the Messiah Because the word of God was their way of justifying themselves. And it became a law to them instead of their lead to Jesus Christ, to the Messiah. The Bible is meant to reveal to us our need of Jesus and Jesus himself so that we can enter into a personal relationship with him. And the Bible leads us deeper and deeper and deeper into relationship with Jesus Christ. If you go to the Bible and you don't see Jesus, and if you don't end up by reading and saying, Lord, you are so good, I want more of you, then the Bible is a law to you and not life to you. The Bible is meant to give us 
life through Jesus Christ and take us deeper, deeper, deeper into the love of Jesus to solidify our relationship to Jesus again and again and again. That's why it doesn't matter how many scriptures you read. Whether you read one or the whole book of Chronicles in one sitting, it doesn't matter because it's about what have you learned about Jesus Christ? How have you seen Jesus portrayed in scriptures? It's about relationship, relationship, relationship. It's about Jesus, Jesus. The whole volume of the book from Genesis to Revelation, it's about Jesus. Yeah, the answer to the Bible. Jesus, Jesus. Jesus then makes a connection to Daniel 2. Remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream? He sees all the kingdoms of man and a rock comes that is not not, um, hewn from stone and comes and it pummels all the kingdoms of men, turns them to powder and then sets up a kingdom and the rock rules over the kingdom forever and ever. And Jesus says on that rock, fall on that, whoever falls on that stone will be broken. But whoever it falls, remember that rock again in Daniel. It's an allusion to Daniel chapter two. Wherever that rock falls, it grinds to powder. Jesus was giving them an opportunity to leave their prejudice, receive the truth, realize he is the Messiah, fall on the rock, but it would cost position, self-righteousness but there would be a salvation. Now there's more testing. Verses 19 through 26, the chief priest that very hour wanted to lay hands on Jesus, but they couldn't because of Jesus' popularity among the people. Jesus had done for the common people what the religious leaders never did. Jesus had lived among them. Jesus had loved on them. Jesus had healed them. Jesus had talked with them. Jesus had associated with them. Jesus had restored them to being the descendants and children of Abraham. And Jesus had offered them forgiveness of sins and salvation. So the chief priests watched him and they sent spies to entrap him. They hoped to seize upon his word, to trip up Jesus in his words, to get Jesus to say just one thing that they could use against him before men or before Caesar. So many today... Seize upon one word, one sentence, one statement taken out of context and do not measure it against the whole counsel of God or the whole man and everything that he has said. They use it to condemn, to disqualify so they don't have to give an account. And the chief priest hoped to condemn Jesus. It's a trick question that they ask. They say, teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly And you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God truly. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, if Jesus says yes, the people will turn on them because they felt that the taxes were supporting the oppression of Rome and keeping Israel from their nationalism. If Jesus says, no, don't pay taxes, then the chief priest will go right to Pilate and the Roman authorities will seize him and condemn him for sedition. And the enemies of Jesus are sure. Oh, we've got him with this one now. But Jesus asked them a question. First of all, why do you test me? This only proves that they were the occupiers in the vineyard. 
They were looking on something to seize upon so they could kill the heir and owner of the vineyard. Why are you doing this? Their motivation is exposed. Then Jesus says, show me a denarius. Don't you love this? Jesus doesn't have a denarius. He doesn't go in his pocket and go, oh, here's a denarius. What do you see on this? He has to ask, anyone have a denarius? He lives so totally in dependence on his father. Anyone have a denarius? I love that. He doesn't even have a denarius. Then as the Pharisees pull out their denarius because they've got them, he says, whose whose inscription, whose name and image, whose image and inscription do you see? And they said, well, Caesar's. The Bible is a means to an end, and that end is Jesus Christ. It reveals to us our need for a Savior and introduces us to Jesus so we can have a personal relationship with Him. We can read the Bible expectantly, knowing Jesus will meet us there, and we'll see His truth and goodness. As this happens, we'll be taken deeper into our relationship with Him, and we'll experience more of His love, life, and power in our lives. We hope you have been blessed by today's Bible study. For more information about the Gracious Words radio program and the teaching ministry of Cheryl Broderson, please visit our website at graciouswords.com. Coming up next time on the Gracious Words program, we'll see the religious leaders contend with Jesus as we continue our Jesus Magnified study in the Gospel of Luke with Cheryl Broderson. We do hope you make plans to join us. Again, for more information, please visit our website at graciouswords.com. This program is sponsored by Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.